Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite, a Project Moon Hut podcast series where we're looking to establish sustainable life on the moon through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. Our purpose is to change how we live on Earth for all species. Today, we have an incredible guest on the line. We have Frank White. Hello, Frank. How are you? Hello, David. I'm fine. Thank you. Frank is one of those individuals, like many, that I've wanted to get on to our podcast series because I've used one of the concepts, terms, relative uh, thoughts in many of the presentations I've given. And yesterday we had a long conversation as to where we were going to take this program and he gave a title of where he was going to go and we work on it. Sometimes they could take 15 minutes, sometimes it could take an hour or up to three to create a title. So yesterday we came up with a title and Within no time he sent me, I've got a new one. So today's title is The Astronaut's Secret. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing what Frank has to say about The Astronaut's Secret. So Frank, you have a few bullet points or an outline for us to follow today? I do. Can I have them, please? Yes, you can. So number one, we are already in space. Okay. Number two. We need a new philosophy of space exploration. Number three, we need to ask the purpose of space exploration. Using big words. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, uh, for everybody who doesn't know, I, I tell people that I have a guess. I have a blank white sheet of paper in front of me, and I have to write these out. When they're very long, they just take a while. Next, number four. Number four, remember Columbus. Okay. And is there more? Number five. Yeah. We need to create a central project for all of humanity. That's it. Okay. Those are all pretty long. I appreciate you took the time on coming up with long ones for me. <laughs> okay. So let's start with number one. We are already in space. What are, what are we going to learn? What am I going to learn today? Yeah, you know, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you a story to illustrate this because I, I think of it all the time, and I wrote about it in my book. Um, when my son was young, I used to take him to daycare every day, mm-hmm. and I was desperate for an audience, David. I don't know if you ever went through that, but... I had a lot of ideas and nobody was listening to me. So <laughs> I used to go to the daycare center and there was a guy named Howie who ran it and he was kind of interested in space exploration and I, I used to say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna need daycare centers in orbit. But I don't know how you're gonna do it. These kids are hard to handle anyway, right? And what if they're not running around? What if they're floating around? And I would say, hey, man, can you imagine changing a diaper in space in zero gravity? Anyway, he was my audience, you know, and he he finally said, Frank, look, why don't you come talk to the kids about this? And I'll have the staff come. I'll come. And I thought, "Okay, that's great. I'll go. So the day (laughs) arrived and I went there and I talked about living on the moon. I talked about space settlements between the earth and the moon living on mars and all that stuff and at the end i said how many of you would like to live in space 
everybody raised their hands but one little kid named Masaki. And he looked at me and he said, but Mr. White, we are already in space. And I had to laugh. I was actually a little upset because I felt... <laughs> he took your thunder. <laughs> well, I felt like, why didn't I say that? I mean, he's four years old. <laughs> but anyway, I honored him. <laughs> the, story is in my, the story is in my book, and I tell the story a lot. <laughs> I, I could see the set here. I could see you kind of deflating. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting. In two thousand and eight, uh, I was at the International Space Development Conference. We launched the Overview Institute, and I started that one out with all these space advocates in the audience. I said, "Hey, how many of you want to live in space?" All the hands went up. I said, congratulations, you've achieved your goal. We are in space. And the why am I saying this? Well, Look, I, I need to ask you, how old, yeah. your son was in daycare. Yeah. And I, I don't want to give your age out loud. It's up to you. That's okay. Uh, I think, was it 74? I'm 75, yeah. 75. Uh, the, 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 the amazing things about Google. Yeah. The... How old was he, how old how old was your son at this point? How, what year was this when you had this uh, uh, wise, he, <laughs> smart kid in the room? He must have been four. So how old was that? Was that forty years ago? Yeah, I, I must have been. Let's see, I must have been in my late thirties, early forties. Okay, so that's forty some odd years ago. Right. That was before I had published anything significant, before my first book came out. Again, I had a lot of ideas and nobody listening. <laughs> and, uh, okay. you know, well, I, I'm happy. The, reason, the reason I bring it up, and this is not to be morbid, it's yeah. because there's timelines. And when you have interviews like this, there are 20 years from now or 40 years from now, someone could be listening to this and saying, that's the history that happened. Yeah. And I think I shared with you that I did one of Zig Ziglar's last interviews and I did yeah. Charlie Tremendous Jones' last interviews. Mm. Not that you should be on that list. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just nice to have a relative term because you were uh, 1969 going to space or landing on the moon. This is pre. This is really early in the space industry. Yeah. Pretty early, actually, and maybe around the time the first shuttle flight happened, uh, around the time that we were thinking seriously, you know, about building uh, the International Space Station. Okay. It was early, but I have to tell you, there was one thing going on then that really was very important to me, and it was a lot of what I was talking about, and that was I had discovered the Space Studies Institute that's... Uh, founded by Gerard K. O'Neill, and they were talking about building these freestanding space settlements between the Earth and the Moon. And even, even though I felt that I was a pretty obscure contributor to the debate then, I was excited because I was beginning to find kindred spirits, and I felt, okay, maybe there's something I can do here. To You and I don't know each other that well. And as you were listing your five, yeah, you were very much, as I was feeling that exact same thing, I said there are a lot of things that I think that 
as we become friends over time, I believe that'll happen. The you share, I believe, underlying many of the the things that I believe in. So I, I I'm excited to hear more. Yeah. Well, I think that the important thing to say about that period of being and learning from Masaki that we are in space is that it was in many ways the beginning of my feeling like we really need to use new kinds of language to talk about space exploration. And first of all, our perception of what's going on is totally wrong. We have the same experience our ancestors had 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, however far back you want to go. Those of us who've lived our lives on the surface of Earth, we talk about going into space as if we're not there. And we feel like we're on this stable platform where the stars and planets are rotate. <clears throat> excuse me, rotating above us, intellectually we know it's not the case. We, we've learned that it's not true, but that's different from how we feel it. And that's the big difference between us, us and the professional astronauts who they've gone out there, they've had the experience, they know that the Earth is in space, they've seen it, and they felt it, and they come back with experiential knowledge instead of intellectual knowledge. That's why I keep pounding at home. We're already in space, and I know you're very concerned about behaving differently on the Earth, and if we could just get it through our heads that we are on a spaceship, we are the astronauts of Spaceship Earth, and we have to start acting differently because astronauts on a an artificial spacecraft if they acted the way we are they would not they wouldn't succeed i've i've heard that i don't know what to call it the the framework yeah that we are on planet earth i don't know if it was on a book or a, a famous quote that someone has put out the challenge that I run into is it's really difficult to get your mind around that. It's, yeah. it's more of a, I believe it, but I don't see it. It's not part of my everyday. You want me to change something. And yet I got on, a, I got on a subway today. I got in a taxi today. I ate some food today. I woke up in a bed today. I don't see space. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I think you and I, in terms of where Project Moonhot is going, and we won't get into that right now, are trying to change a paradigm shift thinking to understand that we are in space. Mm. Yet I think that phrase to me has never really resonated. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'm struggling with the same thing you are. I mean, I, I've spent... Uh, much of my life, my adult life, trying to communicate this. And when we have a minute, I'll go back and tell you what happened after the Masaki incident that really 
started me on this path. But okay, is it later on in the in the in, in the outline, or do you want to share it now? I could share it now because it's, yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm yeah. curious now. No, it's really fundamental uh, because it started my research into astronaut experiences. Um, Does Nasaki get a commission for everything, uh, or some type of spillover for the work that he's helped generate? No, but I want to look him up. I wouldn't be surprised if he's very successful at something somewhere. He's in his thirties now. Uh, maybe someday he'll get in touch and say, I've got a trademark on that. <laughs> Stop <laughs> saying it. Um, anyway, uh, so around that time, as I said, I had discovered O'Neill and Space Studies Institute. I was flying cross country on a consulting job, nothing to do with space exploration. I was staring out the window for a long period of time and I kind of went into an altered state. I was thinking about space settlements all the time. What would it be like to live in space all the time? Oh, okay, we're already in space, but <laughs> what would it be like to live in a space settlement all the time? And I had an epiphany, that's the only way I can describe it. I, I realized if if I lived in one of these settlements, I'd always have an overview. It would be a heightened version of what I'm experiencing now. I'd see the Earth as a whole system. I'd see that everybody on it is interconnected. I would just know things that we are struggling to grasp, that spiritual teachers have been trying to tell us, systems theorists have been trying to tell us, everybody's trying to tell us this. We would just know it. And I called it the overview effect, and that was it. And So you had the overview effect before we went to space? I mean, before you heard about the astronauts and taking the photo, and every, or was this after 1968? It was after 68. It was in the late 70s, early 80s. So it was after Apollo and all of that. But... I'd always been interested in space exploration, and I had been very, very inspired by Apollo, as many people were. So I was into the whole issue of space exploration, and I was struggling, as the Masaki story shows, how do I get into this, right? Um, I had thought about going to the Air Force Academy as a young man. I got into the Air Force Academy. That was my route to being an astronaut, but then I got into Harvard, and uh, unlike you, I'm not very good at science and math, so I went to Harvard. But that left the question, how do I get into this field? And this was my way in. Now I had a way from a social science point of view, and I thought, okay, but there are no space settlements. How do I prove that? Are you a social scientist? Is that your background? That's my that's my field from Harvard and Oxford. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, uh, but I call myself a philosopher now, space philosopher, because I think it better fits what I do. Um, anyway, I called NASA and I said, hey, I've got to interview all the astronauts. <laughs> you know? And they said, well, they're busy. Uh, <laughs> Uh, if you come to Houston, we can give you two of them. Oh, well, that's not a database. You know, that's not a sample size. I was thinking in social science terms because 
I thought, we don't have space settlers, we do have astronauts, they'll be the proxies. So then the guy on the phone just changed my life. He said, you know what? You can interview retired astronauts, we don't control them. Oh, okay. So that's what started my research with astronauts, and I did go to Houston, I did interview two of them. And then I started networking my way to finding retired astronauts. And essentially, I think the first 16 interviews confirmed there was something there. There was something significant about seeing the Earth from space and in space, from orbit, from the moon. Something different. They knew we are in space, if you want to put it that way. And so that was the first edition of my book, which came out in 1987, and I'm now working on the fourth edition of it. So when you say <clears throat> we're ready in space, and your next item was we need a new philosophy of space, does it fall into the new philosophy, or are we still in the we're ready in space? The two are very much related. I mm -hmm. think. That's why I'm asking. Yeah. Because it sounds like you've melded into a new way of thinking. Yeah. What has been your biggest obstacle? And I'm thinking of Project Moon Hut. Yeah. Uh, the foundation. What has been your biggest obstacle that you perceive for people's acceptance on a, on a behavioral level, not on an intellectual level? Yeah. From, to make the changes that are necessary from non-space loving people. <laughs> I mean, we know many of the same people. Bruce Pittman is already there. Yeah. Dan Rasky is there. I'm talking about people like me. What's your biggest obstacle you've run into? Finding a way to give them an experience that's similar to that of the astronauts. That's the problem. I find people accept the idea. <clears throat> you know, I use a trinity in communications of awareness, knowledge, and behavior where you can give people awareness of something, you can give them knowledge about it, but that doesn't change their behavior necessarily. And I think that the closer we can get to the experience, the better we're gonna be. And so that's why I'm supporting and my colleagues are supporting commercial space flight, but also maybe the bigger payoff is gonna be virtual reality. And I know people who are working to reproduce the astronaut experience through virtual reality as well. So, yeah. Uh, I, we could bring it up a little. I don't know if this is appropriate because I shared some of the things that we're working on and changing the behaviors on Earth. Yeah. And I don't know, and I don't know in what you're saying here, the purpose of space, the because I don't think it, I don't know if it's here, so you're going to have to help me. Going to have to help me. Can you explain the overview effect? Or I mean, you you talk about it in a way. Can you give your interpretation or the, your definition of the overview effect so I hear it from you? Yeah. Well, it's a cognitive shift that astronauts experience when they are in orbit or on a lunar mission 
And it's a change in their self-awareness, a change in their identity, a change in their worldview. And it has certain elements to it that are characteristic. For example, they're struck by the lack of borders and boundaries on the earth. They're struck by the thinness of the atmosphere that protects us from the harshness of outer space. They have a visceral understanding of the need for sustainability for the environment. And I think for many of the astronauts, the conflicts we engage in on the planet seem very uh, petty and unnecessary. But I think more than anything else, um, they really see that we're on a planet. And uh, that planet is moving through the universe. I mean, don't forget, the astronauts, not on, they're not just sitting out there. They're actually circling the Earth every 90 minutes as well. And this also gives them a new understanding not only of space, but of time. So it's, it's a shift. But one thing I want to say, David, because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this, they don't all express it the same way. One of the myths that's been out there early on was that all the astronauts have a spiritual experience. Well, not necessarily. It depends on how you interpret that. But what's important to understand is I believe they have this shift, but how they express it depends on who they are in their own history. I've often quoted Edgar Mitchell, who I interviewed for the book, and I'd interviewed several astronauts when I came to interview him, and he said, what have you learned? And I said, well, I thought the experience was going to be pretty homogeneous. Everybody would have the same experience. But it's very different. Everybody has a different experience. And he said, no, I would contest that. We all had the same experience, but we interpreted it according to our own experience of the past, uh, our training, and so on. And this is difficult for people to grasp that it is the same experience, but the interpretation of it is necessarily different by the person. My mind is racing to extremes. I just wrote, uh, I just made a bell curve. Okay. Can you give me, I'd like to hear, please. I'd like to hear two different extreme, you don't have to use their names, extreme differences in interpretation or feeling or something where one person saw this, 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 and this, and another person saw, I mean, you almost said, did you go to space? Mm -hmm. Did you have that dichotomy or the, yeah. split? in uh, the types of interviews you had? Yeah. Well, I, I really haven't talked to any astronauts who said nothing happened, personally. I Actually, I was at a conference, and there was an astronaut there whose name I don't remember, and I briefly talked to him after a luncheon. He said, nothing happened. <laughs> you know, I did my <laughs> I, I never got to talk to him further, but I've had people report to me 
oh, Frank, you know, I talked to so-and-so. He said he didn't experience the overview effect. Okay, well, I don't know what you said to him or her, but I usually, once I can tease it out, it's, oh, their minds weren't blown because that's an that's a popular interpretation of the overview effect is that people have their minds blown. It's much more subtle than that. But so at, at one extreme, there are people who are saying not much happened, nothing happened. I did my job, whatever. Edgar Mitchell is at the other extreme. And I even gave a different name to it. I called it the universal insight because he actually excuse me, he actually, on the way home from the moon, did have his mind blown. He, he experienced a unity and oneness with the entire universe. He, he came to see uh, that there is a God, but it's not the God we popularly think about. He began to see energy and matter in a new way. I mean, he had an epiphany and he came back and he talked to people at universities and psychologists. And he said, what happened to me? What happened out there? And one of them said, well, you experienced Samadhi. How do you spell that? S-O-M-A-T-I? S-A-M-A-D-H-I. I went to, I, there's a group called Renaissance Weekend. Oh, yeah. It's just, okay. Yeah. Uh, when I, the person who introduced me actually wrote a letter. I don't know if you, you, I don't think people write letters, but he wrote this long letter as to why I should be accepted. And I love the letter. It's well, it was uh, an honor that he would think of me in the way he did. And when he sat me down, he said, David, I want to tell you something. Don't be surprised if you meet an astronaut or you meet a this or that. And I'm thinking, okay, this would be kind of cool. I'm sitting at the table, first dinner, first event, first everything, and I'm talking to this guy. His name is Jim. We have a great conversation all over the place. And he, at one point, I said, oh, Jim, what do you do? Or he said it to me first. I don't remember the order. And he said, I'm an astronaut. <laughs> so Jim Newman, I don't know if you know Jim. I don't. Uh, he was the guy who replaced the, uh, what do you call it, the battery in the Hubble telescope right okay and it was from that point on it was interesting to hear his take and his thoughts about space yeah i i i'm sitting here and i i do feel that oneness mm. with the larger place even though i'm not a space person mm -hmm. and hearing you talk about this is making me reach out energy wise I, I i'm not an energy person but yet i've been more into it recently because i felt some things i haven't felt yeah and i and i can tell because it's on my arms i feel it through my arms and the tops of my legs i i, uh, I don't know how to describe it so the misunderstanding are there any other misunderstandings or or pieces that would help help Project Moon in terms of the thinking, helping me and the listeners. And I know we don't talk about them per se, but help us to get a better grasp. Well, let me can I can I, let me throw this out to you. Yesterday we spoke and we talked about changing how we live on Earth. Mm. And one of the things that I've said that before I found the overview effect, I said looking down on Earth 
astronauts realize there's no Italy, there's no Germany, there's no Brazil, there's no U.S., there's no China, there's just land. Those are artificial lines we've drawn. And when they look down, they see there's no Atlantic Ocean or Pacific Ocean. And you look for the Mediterranean Sea, while you could see what we've labeled them, there's actually just one sea. Yeah. And if I, I don't know what the number is today, but I used the number 536 at one point. I think it's more like 550 right now of individuals have been to space 24. I've seen it from afar. Is that they've been profoundly changed in one way or another. They see some of the things you've said. And I said, if we get 5,000 people into space, that would change uh, a lot. Yeah. If we had 50,000, it would be amazing. But what if we had every president of every nation before they could take office had to go up into space and look down once? policy would be changed all over the world instantaneously uh the there's a lot here in this term that you've created the overview effect and i i'm i i appreciate i guess that's the best way i, I appreciate you defining that those words because they're help they've helped me to frame a lot of the thoughts that i had in terms of how project mood moves forward so I guess there's a thank you in there and a little bit of information for for you and for anybody else that that's where we're trying to go is to change how we live on Earth. And <laughs> overview effect is a huge part of that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I applaud. Know. Yeah, I applaud what you're trying to do. And I think when we talked yesterday, one of the points I mentioned is that <clears throat> I think that one of the attractions people have to the overview effect is that it's as much about the Earth as it is about the solar system or the galaxy or what we call outer space. And there are plenty of people who don't really care about exploring outer space. There are plenty of people who think it's a waste of time and money, but they deeply care about the home planet. And therefore... What they take from it is this cognitive shift, this change in worldview, this, um, this new way of thinking. And immediately what's exciting is people say, oh, okay, 550 people have had it. What if we had thousands of people? That would address the issues we have here on the earth. And so they immediately start thinking of ways to do it. And I think one thing I want to back up and say is virtual reality might be the best way to do it, but we shouldn't, um, you know, we shouldn't just ignore what's already occurred. Most historians would agree that the environmental movement just got a huge boost from Apollo, and especially Apollo 8 when they showed the Earthrise picture. Um, so we shouldn't say that space exploration and imagery and the stories of the astronauts haven't changed life on Earth, because they have. And I think Project Moon Hut can, can learn from that and, and use that experience. The other thing I would say is that other forms of media, while they're inadequate, to really give you the experience are not useless. Uh, the film Overview which was made by a group of filmmakers from the United Kingdom. We launched that on Christmas 2012 at Harvard. 
without any marketing or any big effort to promote it, it's had over 8 million views on Vimeo. It's going to be shown tonight at a UN conference in Geneva. That's going to have a lot of the people there that you are talking about. And I think that although the astronauts talked a lot about a summit conference in space and getting politicians and states, statesmen, states people, I guess you'd say, uh, diplomats there, there are ways to bring that awareness as well. Uh, and we should think about that. And yes, there, there are going to be primary, secondary, tertiary means of educating or, or sharing. Yeah. The Project Moon Hut now in our, going our fifth year is to, is to change how we live on Earth. And the, the challenge is that we have to do it fast enough yeah. to meet the challenges we're facing with climate change, yeah. mass extinction, political unrest, resource depletion, social displacement, and what I've labeled, and I haven't found a better word for it, is unintended consequences from things such as consuming 170 billion animals, fish, and, or water, and land-based per year for 7 billion people, 7.5. So the challenge is not that we don't have this, it's we have to move it faster. Yeah. And so that becomes the challenge. So let, let's get on to, you have, we need to ask the purpose of space exploration. So I know we're talking some pieces of that. What else did you want to add to that? Can I tell you another story? You could tell me <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> no, okay. <you> cannot. <laughs> well, I don't know. Some people would rather just have an answer. I, I... No, I'm, I, st stories, I'm a storyteller too. I think you, yeah. you've gotten that from me. So I'm, I'd love to hear, I think I shared with you that Jeffrey Mamber shared the story where he was there that the, when the Russian space <clears throat> agency was formed. Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah. So I, these stories are are our material for future understanding so i'd love to hear well back in 1986 uh, i had gotten a contract from houghton mifflin to write the overview effect i was a very happy camper um because it was well that would lead to another story i'll, I'll save it but it was my first book to get published and so i was working hard on it and um, what happened was the, the Challenger disaster. That had been something that many of us were looking forward to because there was going to be a teacher on that flight. And I had actually wanted to interview Krista McAuliffe, who was the teacher. And when I was in Houston, for my interview with the other two astronauts, I was actually in the dining hall and there were astronauts everywhere. It was I was like a kid in a candy store. And I looked to my left at one point, I saw a woman standing there and I turned away and she was gone and I'm pretty sure it was Krista. And they told me if I stuck around for a while, I could interview her. 
And I said, no, I have to get back to Boston. I have to get back to work. Maybe I could come back and interview her. And they said, sure. So I had felt very connected to that flight and I had hoped to interview her. And of course, like everybody, I was devastated by the accident. Um, in the aftermath, really a few days afterward, there was a TV program called This Week with David Brinkley. He had Isaac Asimov on, he had Tom Wolfe on, and other panelists, George Will was the other panelist, and they were talking about, okay, wait a minute, this was supposed to be routine. The shuttle is supposed to be routine. We just lost several people. <clears throat> is it worth it if people are going to die? Why, why are we doing this? And, of course, Asimov had some great answers. He's a classic scientist and science fiction writer. But the key exchange was George Will said to Tom Wolfe, Mr. Wolfe, haven't we justified space exploration on rather banal grounds? like nonstick frying pans. And Tom Wolfe said, you're right, George, you're exactly right. This country has never had a philosophy of space exploration. Uh, that was another epiphany for me, because I thought, yeah, that's true. We've just been engaged in, first of all, a race with the Soviet Union, and now, in the aftermath, we don't really have a good rationale. I felt like the book, The Overview Effect, would be inadequate if I didn't have that philosophy. What came to mind was what's wrong with it is it's all homocentric. It's all focused on us. What can we do? What can we get out of it? Nonstick frying pans, mining the asteroids, all of these things very human-centered. I decided to ask myself, what is the purpose of human space exploration, <coughs> excuse me, from the universe's point of view? The universe and the Earth have done something quite remarkable, you know. We have been supported on this planet through evolution to reach the point where we're about to become a spacefaring species. Of course we'll get something out of it, but what are we gonna give? What are we gonna give back to the solar system? And this led to the Cosma hypothesis, which is the idea that there's something we have that we can give to the universe. We can balance giving and taking. It seems a little metaphysical, but We've really come to that point with the Earth where we used to think it was just something to exploit and use. And now you've just laid it out, you know, you just said what we've been doing and it's totally irrational. Unfortunately, why do we need a new space exploration philosophy? The worst thing that could happen in my mind is that we could take the old philosophy into the solar system and just look at it from our point of view and exploit, exploit, exploit. 
So I think the new philosophy has to balance exploration and exploitation. Or we're going to regret it. Do you honestly think that humankind... And this is, I, I want an honest, gut, visceral, not a, do you honestly believe that humankind can, at this point in time, not maybe in 30, 50, 60 years, once we finally get individuals within what we've talked about, mirth, moon, and earth, mm. and we start experiencing these transformations and we have discussions and dialogue, do you think today we're capable of understanding that principle? Not today, but... I'm encouraged, I'm encouraged, you know, there are two things that make me feel we can do this. One is the change in thinking about the earth. I know we haven't gotten there all the way, but I lived through Apollo. I know what the consciousness was like before that. We have had a change. But the other thing that gives me some hope is that I've been on the radio a lot lately to promote my book about the Cosmo Hypothesis, and I've just been really pleased with the reaction I've gotten. I kind of thought people would just poke fun at it because it is so idealistic in a way. But so many of the people interviewing me said, I think you're right. We do need this new space philosophy, and we don't want to look back and regret what we've done 500 years from now. So, you know, I, I can't, I can't even look 500 years from now because <laughs> Botswana just lifted a five year ban on hunting elephants. I know. How can they do that? They can, because it probably come back to bite me. Someone will quote this out of something and out of context is that humankind has needs to make a radical shift. And that's, Again, you and I had uh, somewhat of a conversation on Project Moon. How does that paradigm shifting? There's an there's an iteration. My take is there's an iteration that's necessary between where we are, the overview effect, or the experiences of space in real human uh, endeavors, the shift of consciousness that needs to happen within the space of mirth. And after that, not Mars, Mars is not going to be in this picture in the near future, in my mind. Once we get over that that jump, we'll have enough people to create. Uh, I, I hate to use the word because it's over abused. The tipping point, the, mm. the point in which there's enough individuals thinking collectively about the same ideology that we can understand that there is a giving to the to the universe or giving to the world or giving to uh, animal species or all species of uh, all kinds that we just are not capable of today it's almost like going to a buddhist temple and someone saying grasshopper you're not ready <coughs> yeah that's that's the way i take it i uh, we can lift a ban on hunting elephants and people are excited about this and a good friend of mine is a person whose life is devoted to saving rhinoceroses and elephants. Mm. And how do you justify the individuals say, yeah, finally we can go out and shoot an elephant. Yeah. 
Well, they're doing it because it's profitable. Yeah, it's profitable. There also there are people such as, and I won't mention names, who have pictures that have been circulating in the states of hunting big game. I know. Yeah, just hunting big game. And we had the last black rhino die about a year, year and a half ago. Yeah. I think it was a year ago. And we won't have that one back. And three major species in Australia just went extinct. So, and I believe the United, I haven't read the United Nations report. I've heard about the one million species have gone extinct or something. I'm talking in nonsense here, but there was a report that just came out. We lose between 12 to 24 species every day on earth. And, and this consciousness that I'd love to see happen with what you're saying, I think it's a four, I, I think it's a seed, yet the seed to grow needs humans in the in in the in the area between earth yep on moon in between the moon and earth and on earth and the combination of that where we have different people experiences in different ways where we can start to get some type of consciousness that goes around that i think that's what's necessary it's a it's a step in the right direction well, let me let me just share a couple of stories. Sure. Stories. Let me let me just share a couple of items with you that are encouraging to me. And um, I think one thing I would say before I share that with you is, I think you must have some hope, or you wouldn't have started Project Moon Hut. And it's just the same as me. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't have hope. That doesn't deny the challenge. Oh, I absolutely believe we can solve this. Yeah. That's why I'm doing it. And that's why I put the time in. Yeah. Yes. So yes, it's it's figuring out the right path. So I love the concept. Yeah. I'm just saying in the in the space of today, there's not a lot of people ready for it. Well, let me give you a couple of um, examples that are hopeful in in the short term and speak to your concern about urgency. Have you heard about Space for Humanity? Yes, I don't know enough about it, but yes, I have. All right, I'm on the advisory council. I'm dedicating a lot of my time to it. Uh, it was founded by Dylan Taylor. Yep. The purpose of it is to put, I won't put a number on it, but a large number of people into near space or orbit as soon as possible so that they will have the overview effect experience. They will then be expected to come back and be ambassadors and actively translate their experience into change on planet Earth, on Mirth. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of very interesting people supporting this effort. And I think it's an effort to speak to the issue you're talking about, you know. Um, it's it's an action plan, if you will. Rather than waiting for more astronauts to go into orbit from, you know, the government point of view, you know, with government support, this is private enterprise. It's not even private enterprise. It's a nonprofit, but it's private actors doing what they can to meet the challenge you're talking about. 
Another one that gives me hope is Sir Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic. You know, I interviewed him for the third edition of my book, and there's no question, Richard Branson sees everything you see, and even though he'll make money from Virgin Galactic, that's not the point. He doesn't need money. Um, he wants people to experience the overview effect so they'll be changed and come back and help life on Earth to be better. There are many other efforts going on, and it it's one of the reasons the thing I've been saying and challenging people to think about, I believe this experience should be a human right. I really think we ought to see what we could do to have as many people on Earth have the experience, because not only would it be good for them, because they would then know the truth about our situation, we're in space. Um, but they would, we hope, do things for the planet and for our civilization that would be, maybe we would save the elephants, you know? Um, I don't know what would happen, but I know it could be very good. Did, did you interview Ron from Israel, who was on the Challenger? No. Okay. I, I think I think he was actually on the other flight. To, Which one was he on? Hmm? I have to look it up. I think it was he. The in Israel they have uh, the Ramon Ramon Foundation. Uh huh. Ron um, Ren Levine Ramon. Yeah. He they said his wife set up a foundation, and every year, two hundred and fifty student, two hundred and fifty teachers uh, or volunteers go into schools. Yeah and teach Israelis about space. Oh, good. Cool. And they it's a, about a $3 million fund, I think, they have. An amazing guy, Ron Lev, Levine. Um, I have to look it up. Mm. Uh, they, It's an amazing effort to change Israeli thinking. Mm -hmm. Good. So uh, L-I-V-N-E, Ramon Foundation. Mm -hmm. And... It's a. Uh, it's to do exactly this to make sure that his spirit continues to grow and and evolve in in the lives of people. Yeah. So I believe there are a lot of individuals trying to do this. Yeah. And I sometimes struggle between new space and old space and spray space debris, and blowing up satellites, and uh, military acquisitions. Acqu acqu um, acquisitions of space however yeah. i'm saying it improperly and how that will play itself out so yes i do believe we should have an uh a new purpose what about columbus well i've recently started talking to people about something that happened last fall and i you know um, columbus used to be a heroic figure for many people in the United States. He was a great explorer, and he supposedly discovered where we live now, although that's not quite true, we know that. But he, he had Columbus Day, a day when we used to honor him, and now all of a sudden all these cities are saying, well, we're not celebrating it because he was also a great exploiter, and the big thing that happened last fall was that Columbus, Ohio, 
celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day. Really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if they're going to change the name of the city. I wouldn't be surprised. But my point is, what did Columbus do to deserve this losing his day? Did he do something terrible last year? No, he was dead. He didn't do anything terrible. Our consciousness has changed. We see him differently. We understand him differently. One way, I think, to change awareness in the present, I know you said you couldn't look 500 years ahead, but one way to do it is to say, I want you to look 500 years ahead. Will your descendants, will our descendants look back and say, David didn't do all he could to avoid this calamity. Frank didn't do all he could to change awareness. And I I point out that for a lot of us, you know, who are into the space business, Elon Musk is a hero now. Jeff Bezos is a hero. Richard Branson is a hero because they're getting us out there. I don't want our descendants to look back and those people are now villains. And I, I make it personal. I don't want to be seen as a villain. It's interesting. I, uh, thinking 500 years into the future is an exercise that I, that's a challenge for most people only because I, I ask people to think, 20 years in the future for their organization Mm. or 50 or 100 or a few generations from now and the reason that people have challenges with the future and I'm not going to go into all the pieces is the future is hard the future requires the connectivity of a lot of different actions all at once yeah and you have to be versed in them for example you and I grew up and you're older than me by about 20 years they're supposed to be flying cars yeah there are no flying cars. Right? There might be happening soon, but we were supposed to have them all over the place. Mm. Our buildings are, I'm in a building that's 10 years old. There's buildings here that are 50 years old. And we, as I've said many times, we get up in a bed. We still use gas stoves. We don't use ray beams in the in the bathroom. <laughs> and there's promise of IoT and toilets that can uh determine our chemical urine and feces to to give us food that we need. Yeah, I understand all of that. But to go 500 years in the future is is an exercise more than it is a, an understanding. It takes a lot of work. So I'm not as, for me, I think the challenge is to even get people to think 50 years from now. Mm. And that's why when I bring up climate change and I say, what does 15 cm do or six inches do? And people have no clue what the impact of a 15 cm or 6 inch rise in seawater levels comprise. Yeah. Or they don't understand that China is supposed to have about 25 years left of topsoil and the United States 65 years. Mm. Or they don't understand what certain things such as artificial intelligence may do and may not do. There's robots coming from the future and terminators. And as I just read in a book, I can't remember the guy's name, our vacuum cleaner's not going to attack us. <laughs> but we have well, we have Cambridge Analytica yeah. who used artificial intelligence, predictive analysis, big data to influence elections. And our big challenge is the next 50 years. How can we assume that? So mm. I'm 
I'm not afraid of what the future will look back on you nor I, uh, nor me, because I think we're trying to do something. And if I think that Elon's trying to do something, whatever his efforts are and whatever Bezos and Branson are, I think the challenge is we have too few people doing it. And that's where I think you, this is an underlying belief, I believe you're trying to expand that ecosystem just as I am. Yeah. That there are more individuals who have a different philosophy of being in space, participate in this endeavor to to change how we live on Earth and within Earth for all species. I think there's enough of us. We just have to get them there. And that's the challenge. The other, the other thing, though, I think is really important, and it fits in with your work. We don't have to get everybody to get to understand this. We have to get the right number. And, uh, you know, there's a whole theory about diffusion of innovation that shows innovations always start with a small number, and you got to get up to about 20% of the population for the innovation to <clears throat> take off and never be stopped. And the innovation here is this new way of thinking. And we also look at the fact that, for the most part, most great change, social change among humans, has started with a small band of let's say revolutionaries, if you will, a small band of people thinking in a new way. And you you use the term, and I agree with it, tipping point. That's what we have to do. I think it's overwhelming to think of, can we get 8 billion people to adopt to this philosophy or way of thinking? What is I, I, I'm going ju- to jump in. I just did some math. We have one of our initiatives on the and because he used the word 20%, we want to have a change a billion hearts and minds. Yeah. And what is a billion? A billion, uh, 20% of seven, uh, 7.5 billion yeah. is approximately 1.5 billion. Yeah. So, so that's the, that is our target has been a billion hearts and minds. Agreed. And I, I think that's the right number. And, Maybe it sounds impossible, but I don't know. I mean, we also have the technology where we can put a a video out there and 8 million people can see it, which when I wrote the first book, there was nothing like that available. And, uh, you know, we we do have the technology. And again, even to narrow it down further, leaders... How many really important, influential leaders are there on the planet? If we could only get to them, what a difference. I don't know how many there are, but... I, I, I don't think it's the leaders. I think it's, it's the hidden leaders. Right. Like that, it's, and I, I don't remember her name, the, the girl who stood up in the Davos it's the unsung heroes that can move people with something different than the skepticism we have that comes with mm-hmm. Brexit and the in the in the Trump situation and North Korea and the Philippines and all of these countries around the world that are making changes. I think that we have to find the new mm-hmm. the new generation, and that's 
kind of why it's a billion hearts and minds. Yeah. And I've been asked many times, why aren't I, why aren't I calling Elon? I said, I've been, a- I've been offered to be introduced to Elon. I don't think he's the guy. Mm. A, I, I don't. <laughs> you'd enjoy the interview, I bet. I, I, no, I would interview him if he wanted to be on the interview, but it's not, it's not where we're going. And I think that's why I love the overview effect. It's so simple that anybody can grasp, grasp the concept. Yeah, it's not it's not L2 and lunar this and cis lunar that and all the abbreviations that NASA has or or the space industry has, which is a completely different language. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. Also, I think that. You know, I think that there is a reason that I had that insight. I mean, I think it's a message the astronauts have been doing their best to give us. But we needed a non-astronaut to do it. Right. For the reason you're fighting. And were you a space person when you grew up? Yes. Okay. Very much so. There are a lot of you out there. (laughs) I I, I put you on the other side. You're a a lot of you. Yeah. Uh, So remembering Columbus looking back and I... Right now, I, I think we're more we're more on the ropes than we have to worry about looking back. I think we have to yeah. continue the effort. The, the effort. You said we need to create uh, a cultural project for all of humanity. The key term is central project. Central. Okay. Yes, I have central on here. Yeah. Central project. And I would also personalize it and say it. I am creating it. I am working on that. Uh, that is now my project Moon Hut. Another seminal moment in my work was a friend of mine named Bruce Shackleton, who, of course, has the name of that great explorer. Yes, I was going to say, okay, yeah. how old are you, did you say? <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine named Ernest Shackleton. <laughs> no, this interview is over. <laughs> no, Bruce is a friend and a colleague. We're actually working on a project with the Overview Effect. Uh, as well, but Bruce gave me an article and it was about central projects. And a central project is something like the Gothic cathedrals, the pyramids, or even the Apollo program that unifies people in in a society, brings them together around a big, difficult, challenging effort. And, um, it struck me that that was really an important idea. And in my first book, I proposed a central project for all humanity that I called the Human Space Program. I call it that because the overview effect makes it clear that exploring the universe is not a national effort. It's, a, it's an effort of our planet, our people, And um, so that's why I called it human space program was to contrast it with uh, nation based programs. And at that time I laid it out as a millennium long project that would involve all of, all of the best energies of our society in in exploring the solar system first and then beyond. 
So what happened is it just remained a concept for quite a long time. And then I started promoting it more heavily, more openly. And uh, it was it was at one point called the Academy in Space Project. I was thinking of getting all the universities involved in this idea of the idea is to tackle the critical questions as we leave planet Earth. And I gave a talk about this at my Harvard reunion, and one of my classmates, Ted Field, came up and said, I'd like to help you, but I'd like for it to be bigger than the universities. Let's involve space agencies and private enterprise and all of that. And so we went back and resurrected the idea of the human space program. And what we're promoting is the concept of creating 16 task forces that will look at all of these critical questions, including what do we do to preserve our planet, planet Earth. And it will look at all the critical questions as we plan to leave the Earth. And we will come up with a comprehensive plan for exploring and developing the solar system. It's going to be sustainable, it's going to be inclusive, and it's going to be, we hope, transformational. And we're going to then share that widely. We're going to run simulations on it to see if it works. And the whole idea is to find a successor to the overview effect, but it's still based on the overview effect, a successor as a unifying idea or project or activity uh, as we leave planet Earth. And it's going to be very important that it not mean abandon planet Earth. So, we're now working on this. Uh, the Human Space Program is a nonprofit incorporated in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and we're going to move on from there. So I'm adding that to the projects that I hope are going to help achieve the goals we're talking about. I'd like to be kept abreast of some of the things that are that you're working on. Okay. Uh, it's. And we'll have to. Sh I'll have to sit down and hear more about what your what that actually means, and then uh, potentially, if you hear what we're working on, our role in Project Moonhut is to help you. Yeah. And we can actually do that. We can help you get there faster. Love to that's, help. Yeah. So that that's what our initiative is about. We Project Moonhut doesn't pick the winners. We don't pick the industry. We don't pick the tech. We don't pick the individuals. What we do is we enable the space industry to accelerate its growth and expel, accelerate Earth's understanding mm. of a shift in consciousness that comes from paradigm shifting. And it's more complex than that. It takes a while to explain, but I, we look to help anybody who's looking to, to further anything having to do with getting uh, what we call a box with a roof and a door on the moon. Yeah. Uh, getting them hot. And I said this before to other people, Project uh, Bruce Pittman and the people in the portal named this Project Moon Hut. Uh -huh. So it wasn't the name we chose. They gave it to us. Yeah. So 
that's our initiative. So we would love to, I'd love to know more so we can help you. Hey. Is there a, I don't typically interview, I don't think I've ever interviewed anybody twice. Yeah. Is there one thing that you haven't said you wish you could say today that you have not said and wish it was out there? <clears throat> yeah. I think it's pretty important to understand that when I had this epiphany about the overview effect, I didn't think of it as something extraordinary. I thought of it as ordinary, that people who lived off the planet would not be surprised to see the earth in the sky. And there were things that we're trying to understand now that they would, they would know. They would just know. Just like, you know, if you think about it, there are things we just know today that our ancestors would find really surprising. <laughs> and so this is what I think you're working for. It's what I'm working for. When this shift happens, it will seep into society. We will behave differently. We will think differently. But we'll, we'll be moving on to the next extraordinary thing. And I think that maybe puts it in a context where it seems more doable. Uh, and I think that's what you and I both are looking for. It's that it's, it's doable and, and it's achievable. And uh, that's, that's what I think we're hoping for. Well, thank you very much for the time today. I, uh, I, it was a pleasure to get to know you yesterday and or is yesterday two days ago it's uh and i'm honored that you took the time today to be with us so that that's a thank you to you well thank you it's my pleasure and thank you i'm glad you liked my stories <laughs> <laughs> well if i give stories other people have to, I have to listen to other people's <laughs> too oh, I, I i love your stories because they give texture to scenarios for example this young four-year-old boy giving you realizations. And that's, uh, we build on the shoulders of others, we learn from others, and we often don't realize how much influence throughout our lives these little moments make. So without the story, we don't have context. Mm. And it's this guy who came up with the overview effect. But there's a lot more to it, and that's the value of having the time with someone like yourself to find out more. I suppose we should reveal the astronaut secret. What is the astronaut secret? I, I, I actually thank you. <laughs> what is yeah. it? Well, this is this was explained to me by Al Sacco Jr., an astronaut who grew up in the Boston area uh, and uh, flew on the shuttle as a mission specialist. And he said, "People ask me why I risk my life to." Uh, leave the planet and go into outer space. I explained to them the astronaut secret, and all astronauts know this. We are part of the whole human family. It goes beyond just being citizens of the Earth. We are actually citizens of the universe. And that is the astronaut secret. 
when you said it, I was going to make a joke, and I've got this joke in my head, and I, I'll have to. Uh, I was going to say, "Is it like there's a Holiday Inn on the Moon that we just don't know about?" <laughs> that would be great. I, I uh, <laughs> but I, what, what I, what the way I come away from that, and why it's not just a, a simple phrase, is I ask myself, "What does it mean to be a citizen of the universe?" If we could answer that. I think the transformation you and I are talking about would become real. If we could answer that. I'm going to let that sit. Because that's a whole other discussion. Right. So, I, I, again, I appreciate you on the line. I, I actually appreciate you finished with that. Because I, was, there, oh. I didn't come back full circle. So, thank you. For everybody who's listening, Project Moon Hut... Uh, is we've been working with for over five years on Project Moon Hut. We are a nonprofit organization, and our our job in this podcast series is to expose individuals like yourself to different ways of thinking, to understand how the space industry got to where it is, what they're working on today, and to even expand that more to cover the six areas, six pillars of what we're working on with Project Moon Hut. So we're looking to create sustainable life on the moon, not self-sustaining life, meaning we can support it. We could ship things, items, food, materials to the moon, and, and people can come back. And that's through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. To allow us to be able to innovate faster on Earth, we need to innovate faster to solve some of the challenges, as well as to create this Earth-based, uh, space-based ecosystem. And the desired outcome in the end is that we in change and improve how we live on Earth for all species. We're responsible for the dolphins, the whales, the amoebas, the trees, and everything else on this planet. And we're not doing its service the way maybe I'm imposing my beliefs on others, but that's, uh, we need the ecosystem of Earth to sustain life on Earth, and we have to do a better job of it. So Project Moon Hut's initiatives are to do that. With that said, love to connect with you. You can email me at david at david uh, at projectmoonhut.org. You can Instagram me, Mr. David Goldsmith. You can connect on Twitter at Project Moon Hut or at Goldsmith. And there's LinkedIn and Facebook and other ways to reach out. Today's a world where anybody can find anybody if they really wanted to. So great interview. Thank you once again for being on the line, Frank. And I'm David Goldsmith. And thank you for listening.